Hello and welcome to this broadcast installment of AZ Law here on member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, and I'm a Phoenix attorney. In this program, we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems. We have a lot to get to in this week's program, so let's get it started. Our first article is one that we reported here on ArizonasLaw.org, and we have the interview that goes along with it as well. This was an exclusive, The Perfect Storm, expanded Arizona Supreme Court set two records in 2019. The Arizona Supreme Court set two new records in 2019, and Chief Justice Robert Brutnell notes that it was the perfect storm. He says 2020 will show a noticeable increase in the number of opinions from the expanded Supreme Court. The 26 opinions issued in last year were the fewest issued by Arizona's highest court in modern times. Also, the seven justices have not issued an opinion since the Brush and Nib opinion attracted national attention that was on September 16th, and never has the Supreme Court gone that long without releasing an opinion. Brutnell told us that it is a funny set of circumstances that led to that fewer number of opinions being issued, so we began by discussing that subject. It's not, it's not a big gap, though. I'm looking at some numbers in, in 2018, we issued 31. I think it'll end up being 27 this year. And it's just a, just a funny set of circumstances, I think. Okay, and yeah, I do understand that, you know, we have two new, two new justices on, on the court. I, I think it's a confluence of events, um, and, and that's certainly part of it. You know, when, when Justice Blander and, and Chief Justice Bales left in June and July, then you know, I think everybody worked very hard to get caught up. So everybody wanted to make sure that all the opinions were out so that they wouldn't have to come back to sign off on stuff and everything would be done and out the door. I think in a normal year, probably there would have been some stuff over the summer that would have gotten decided, the opinions would have come down, you know, September, October, November. Um, so that that's part of it. Part of it's new people that uh, you know, they really want the first ones to be good. And, and so, you know, everybody's learning the job and working hard at it. And then they get a new chief justice and a new vice chief justice. And, and you know, so there's, a, there's a learning curve for the administrative stuff as well, which takes some additional time. So it's probably why I haven't been as quick this year. When I look at the numbers, I know there are 17 outstanding right now. I I know there are a couple in the pipeline. um, I know because I have them sitting in front of me. And uh, so I I think you're going to see a bunch pretty quickly. That was the next thing I I was going to note. I I counted 16, I think, in the pipeline, including the Morrissey one that that you issued the order, but uh, not the opinion yet. And is, is, is is that a big pipeline, do you think? You know, I, I think it's unusual to have that many pending. Um, but and then the reality is we're trying to take more cases. Uh, you know, if we've got a group of people that wants to work hard and a group of people that they're, they're here to write opinions, I mean, everybody wants to have an opinion assigned or more than one assigned. And I think we'll probably get back in a more regular rhythm as, as people get a little more experience. Right. And and I noted I, as I was making the notes, uh, at least in the last 10 years or so, the range you noted that, uh, you know, in 2015, there was 31. That's that was the closest number, 31 opinions issued. And it range it's ranged from 31 to 46. And that's not even going back further when when there were a lot of very short opinions. That's right. And so, so do you think that? Ne- are you predicting then that next year there's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be near the upper end of that range? 
Well, I, you know, part of it's not in our control. We, we, I would argue that we take all the cases we ought to be taking. And it, it doesn't take very long doing the job to be able to look at a petition for review and say, that's a case we need to take. Um, but we've got a lot of people, in fact, I think it's unanimous that we all want to take more cases. And the question is, how do you do that? And we, we batted around a number of ideas as to how we could, we could take more cases. Um, you know, for instance, a more robust transfer policy to take cases from the Court of Appeals before the Court of Appeals decides them. Those are some things that we've looked at a little bit. Um, that was, that's like the Morrissey case was yeah, taken. Yeah, that's right. It was a good petition for transfer. We don't typically grant them because we have a very good Court of Appeals and we, we, we value the opinions. We like to see what they have to say on an issue before we take it up. I, I think we will take more cases. I think we'll probably end up somewhere around 70. I, you know, how long it's going to take us to get there is dependent on primarily the cases that, that come up on review. Taking as many as seven, um, I suspect we will take even more than that in a given month, uh, which means we're going to have to expand the number of days that we have oral arguments, but everybody's quite willing to do that. So, so you, so so I, you I do think, think we'll see us taking more. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, I, I, and, and I understand that a lot of it's out of your control. And in fact, we, we, you talked about that at, uh, at the uh, CLE recently at the state bar that I was at. And, yeah, we, we, you know, we've never, we've never taken cases just to tell the court of appeals they're right. Right. Okay. Exactly. But we may start, we may start doing that. Okay, but and, and then on the on the flip side, you know, one of the reasons that the that the legislature, the governor, used to to expanding the court was to so that there would be more opinions issued and there would be more uh, certainty with the law because there would be more cases taken, more opinions issued. Well, that's an that's an intriguing idea to me. I would have said we always took the position that we, we tried to write as narrowly as possible so as to bring everybody on board so that we could have unanimous opinions. Because, and I, and I believe this to be true, that that lends certainty to the law. If it's a five to nothing opinion, it's going to take a long time before there's enough change on the court that those results will change, even if you're not a fan of stare decisis. Hmm. Um, we now have more dissents than we've ever had, and been at least in my tenure on the court, more concurring opinions. That was a, a, something I heard espoused by some of the legislators that, that passed the court expansion bill. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you should write whatever you want to write, whatever you feel you know, moved to write. Um, but I would have said that created less certainty rather than more. <laughs> Having said that, it's not been a bad. I mean, the truth is, more justices is more work than fewer justices, just because of the nature of the work. I mean, if you have if you have six people looking at your stuff as opposed to four, plus all other law clerks, it's going to take longer. It's going to be more work, but but it's but it, but it also makes for a good work product, and certainly they're great people to work with. So I don't have any complaints about the expansion. Um, and and do you feel that the work product uh, has uh, has a Improved be, as a result of the expansion, then. Well, it's certainly, it, you know, certainly you've got different points of view. You've got six people looking at, or seven people looking at it, as opposed to five. You're going to get, you're going to get different points of view. We didn't change the number, as we've talked about at the seminar. We didn't change the number it takes to grant review. And the result of that is, I think we're going to take more cases just because, you know, some people, some person will find a case interesting or think, you know, contrary to everybody else, it's important. Right. And usually, if one or two people feel strongly enough about it, they can always pick up a third vote to take a case. I and mean, then we're seeing some of that. 
As we alluded to in the discussion, in a letter justifying the legislation, Governor Ducey stated that Arizonans deserve swift justice from the judicial branch. Adding more voices will ensure that the court can increase efficiency, hear more cases, and issue more opinions. The governor's office declined to discuss the Supreme Court with us. I then asked Chief Justice Brutnell about some of the issues that he wanted to prioritize as Chief Justice. Mental health issues topped the list. You know, lots of things have happened. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process, and I think Scott Bales was, was, was responsible for taking us down this path. But you know, we recognize, like a lot of states, that, that a lot of people get their mental health resources as a result of their contact with the criminal justice system. Hmm. And so what we're really trying to do is get people where they need to go. And the idea is that we, we don't want to be running mental health facilities in our county jails. And so we, we, we've adopted on a statewide basis what's known as the sequential intercept model. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that every time you have a contact with the criminal justice system from the first time you run into a police officer as a result of a call, all the way through the time you get out of prison and come back to the community, that people in the justice system, the police officers, the judges, the probation officers are all trained to recognize mental illness, to learn how to de-escalate uh, difficult situations with mentally ill people and to get people where they need to go. The result of that was we created, we had a summit and we had county teams created in each of the 15 counties. Um, They came to the summit and talked about how they were going to implement some version of the sequential intercept model in their counties. We're going to have another summit in March where we're going to talk about progress, see who's got the best ideas and continue to try to expand this throughout the state. There's some really interesting stuff going on in Maricopa County, for instance, has their crisis drop-off centers. Access is doing a tremendous job providing a way for police officers to get people off the street and into appropriate mental health treatment rather than into jail. Uh, Yavapai County has what it calls its reach-out program where they're bringing mental health professionals into the jail and getting people out of jail. They've got a cooperative effort with the court up there. So there's lots of interesting stuff going on, and I think we're making some real progress. Another issue that Chief Justice Brutnell wanted to prioritize is bail reform. Well, we can we have an ongoing project with regard to bail reform. The idea really is that people ought to be held in jail because they're a risk, either a risk to reoffend or a risk not to not appear. Right. They shouldn't be held in jail because they don't have enough money to get out, and that really is what the bail system accomplishes. So the idea is we we, we now have an automated. It's called the PSA. It's a it's a pre it's a pretrial assessment, a pre-release assessment that gives a judge a risk score. And we're attempting to automate that and to make sure it's available at every level of the court. And the idea is for bail determinations or release determinations to be made on the basis of a risk score, which is, a you know, part of it's a judge's experience, part of it is that PSA score, and part of it is the probation pre-sentence department, or the pre-release, they call it pre-trial release, the pre-trial release department's recommendations. And so we're trying to make sure those resources are available to every court and judge. The idea being, you know, it does great damage to people in the communities if you're held in jail and you can't go to work and you can't be home with your family and you, you can't make your mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we don't want to keep people we don't need to keep. Exactly. So so that doesn't sound like it's anything that uh, that you need to do with the legislature. No, not really. No, that, that not really. I, you know, I think the issue with the legislature, what we're going to want to talk about is probation funding. What what's that? What are, what are you planning on doing Make, with that? Just making sure we have sufficient numbers of probation officers and, and sufficient funding to, to 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 be able to pay those people. You know, Arizona's got a strange 
hybrid system in which the counties fund half and the state funds half, and, and that creates some anomalies with regard to who gets paid what and, and what the retirement looks like. And so, so we're trying to make sure that we fund it as it is funded equitably, and, and we think the, we think the legislature will be receptive to that. Great. Any other legislative priorities for the coming session? You know that that really is the big one. We were looking at some mental health stuff. We're probably not going to move forward with. Those are the big issues, really. We would like to thank Chief Justice Brutnell for taking the time to speak with AZ Law, especially since he was nearing the end of his holiday vacation. We hope to speak with him periodically to keep the Sun Sounds audience up to date. Well, our next article is also from our reporting on ArizonasLaw.org. Band of Brothers, former Arizona Attorneys General, side with Brnovich in part of his battle with the Board of Regents. Four of Arizona's former attorneys general have banded together to support current Attorney General Mark Burnovich in part of his battle with the state's public universities. They have urged the Arizona Supreme Court to allow the AG to challenge the constitutionality of tuition increases over the past several years. The Supreme Court is trying to decide whether to accept the AG's appeal, and last week, decided to continue its deliberations. Initiated by former AG Terry Goddard, the amicus brief argues that if the justices do not overrule a 60-year-old precedent and permit the AG to challenge the Arizona Board of Regents, then the state constitution's requirement that public university education shall be as nearly free as possible could be rendered meaningless, or at the least, unenforced and ignored. In addition to Goddard, the brief is signed on to by former AGs Tom Horn, Bob Corbin, and Jack Lasota. The only two living Arizona AGs who did not sign on are Grant Woods and Janet Napolitano. The unprecedented effort came about after Goddard spoke about the challenge on KJZZ last August and then published an opinion piece in the Arizona Republic. According to Brnovich spokesman Ryan Anderson, it all just kind of came together. He added that people know each other socially and after the Goddard KJZZ appearance and the follow-up op-ed, former AGs started talking about lending their public support to the effort to overturn McFate. When we first came into office, I recall speaking with former staff that this was something that Horn thought needed to be addressed. Under Arizona's Constitution, the governor appoints the members of the Board of Regents. Current Governor Doug Ducey declined to support this current action against the board. Anderson noted that former Governor Jan Brewer agreed to become the plaintiff in a horn-brought suit against the Maricopa Community College's district, of which Sun Sounds is a part of, regarding in-state tuition for DACA students. And that removed the district's argument that the AG could not bring the suit. It was in 1960 that the Arizona Supreme Court decided that the attorney general could not challenge the state land commissioner. The court also commended the AG for his vigilance and public spiritedness. The current Arizona Supreme Court will again consider the former attorney's general support of their current, uh, their current brother, Brnovich, on February 11th. That was Band of Brothers, former Arizona attorney's general side with Brnovich in part of his battle with the Board of Regents. Our next article is from Howard Fisher, Capital Media Services. This is from January 7th. Attorney General files suit against vaping companies. So we're kind of having segues from Supreme Court to Supreme Court, now Attorney General to Attorney General. 
Attorney General Mark Burnovich filed suit on Tuesday against two companies that make vaping products, charging that they have illegally targeted teens and misled consumers about the amount of addictive nicotine in their products. Burnovich charges that Juul Labs and Eon Smoke appealed to, targeted, and exploited a generation of youth. In the case of Juul, the nation's largest vaping firm, he cited ads that he said feature young, attractive women in suggesting or casual and fun poses. Brnovich also said the pods marketed by Juul dispense more nicotine than cigarettes but are designed to be less harsh, a tactic he said that is aimed at getting young people addicted. For Eon Smoke, Burnovich said the company used social media accounts to find young customers. And he said the company actively marketed flavors like sour apple, pink lemonade, and donut cream, which he said any reasonable person would know would appeal to existing or potential vape users below the age of 18. All that, he said, is a violation of the state's Consumer Fraud Act. There was no immediate response from either company. The lawsuits come after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has raised the age for the sale of vaping and other tobacco products to 21. That agency also outlawed the sale of most flavors. Even Brnovich acknowledged that both companies halted many of the practices cited in the lawsuit, practices he wants a state judge to enjoin the firms from doing in the future. But he denied that the lawsuits and the press conference to announce them were simply designed to generate publicity for him and his office. And Brnovich brushed aside the FDA directive. I'm not going to rely on Washington, D.C. to solve Arizona problems, he said. In fact, I would submit that Washington, D.C. is where good ideas go to die. And even if the companies are no longer engaging in the acts in the complaint, Brnovich said the state still needs to take legal action. Someone has to pay the consequences for what they've done in the past, he said. That goes to the parts of the lawsuit which seek to disgorge the companies of profits that they had made from underage Arizonans who were targeted and deceived. He also wants penalties of up to $10,000 for each knowing violation of the law. Arizona is not the first state to file such lawsuits. Attorneys general in California, North Carolina, and New York also have gone to court, specifically against Juul alleging that the company's marketing practices have contributed to deaths and injuries nationwide. Those claims also charge misleading sales tactics. Brnovich said those are irrelevant, at least as far as Arizona is concerned, and in some ways, he said, it's about money. If the state of, I don't know, California sues, that is not going to have any sort of financial impact on Arizona, Brnovich explained. I want to make sure part of what these lawsuits are about is disgorging the profits, he continued. If you have companies that manipulate a nicotine content, did not disclose information, if they intentionally tried to target youths here in Arizona, I think Arizonans and Arizona families deserve some sort of compensation for that. He said not pursuing such a claim would be like someone whose car was wrecked by another's liability simply being satisfied with an apology and no compensation to fix the vehicle. And at the end of the day, if you don't hold companies accountable, then you're not going to deter other companies from doing so in the future. Less clear is who gets any cash that Brnovich manages to recover. I think at this point that's a little premature, Brnovich said. It depends on if you are able to identify individuals who have been specifically harmed. 
There's also issues of communities that have been harmed. He compared it to lawsuits filed by multiple states, including Arizona, against opioid makers and distributors. Part of the responsibility of the opioid manufacturers is to make sure that there's restitution to the communities that are impacted by this. There actually are other lawsuits aimed at recouping costs. That includes a nationwide class action claim that has been joined by several school districts, including Tucson Unified School District, that seek financial compensation to deal with rising use of tobacco vaping products. But Bernovich said there's a crucial difference between what he filed and the class action lawsuit where the various government agencies are being represented by private counsel. I don't want to see plaintiffs' lawyers enriched, he said. I want to see money going into the communities and the schools that have been impacted by this crisis. The lawsuit comes as a new fight looms at the Capitol over how extensively to regulate vaping products in Arizona. Last year, Senator Heather Carter from Cave Creek, a Republican from Cave Creek, pushed a bill through the Senate to treat vaping like tobacco. That would subject retailers to the same penalties for underage sales and make vaping illegal in public places, restaurants and buildings, just as it is for cigarettes. However, that bill faltered in the House, which backed a plan by Representative John Allen, a Republican from Scottsdale, which proposed a whole separate regulatory scheme for vaping. While it would have raised the age for purchase to 21, it also would have precluded local governments from enacting stricter rules, including licensing requirements and criminal penalties for sales to minors. A similar battle looms when the legislature reconvenes later this month. And that article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, Attorney General Files Suit Against Vaping Companies. Our next article, we segue to another article about Tucson Unified School District. TUSD seeks end of court oversight in the decades-old desegregation case. This is reported by Danielle Kamara of the Arizona Daily Star. TUSD is seeking to be released from court supervision in its 41-year-old desegregation case, according to a petition for unitary status filed on December 31st. Tucson Unified School District Superintendent Gabriel Trujillo said he is confident the U.S. District Court will agree that TUSD is no longer segregated. This is not a segregated district, he said. You have 50 percent of the students in this district that are either in a fully integrated school or in a highly diverse school. 50 percent. Trujillo said 30 of the district's 86 schools are fully integrated, although a racial achievement gap still exists, which is true throughout the state. However, TUSD does not need a court order to take the achievement gap seriously, Trujillo said. This is no longer a desegregation case. This is an academic achievement case, he said. Under the federal court order, however, TUSD is required to focus on more than racial integration. The case calls for addressing not only quality of education, but student discipline disparities, facilities and technology, transportation and community engagement, among other issues. TUSD entered into the case in 1978 when the Mendoza and Fisher plaintiff families filed suit against the district for running a de facto segregated school system. 
Sylvia Campoy, a representative for the Mendoza plaintiffs, said TUSD has not complied with the desegregation court order. There is a continued racial disparity in student discipline, and the district has not properly implemented a plan specific to Mexican-American student services, she said. The academic achievement of Mexican-American and Latino students continues to be of monumental concern to the Mendoza plaintiffs, Campoy wrote in an email. The seemingly casual abandonment of these type of academic services manifests the district's ongoing lack of good-faith effort in implementing important elements of its desegregation court order. Since the inception of its desegregation court order some 40 years ago, TUSD has denied any wrongdoing and has consistently argued its full compliance. The district receives more than $60 million annually from a tax levy to cover expenses in the desegregation effort. Once the case is closed, TUSD will still have the funds available to them for a time, but Trujillo said the district will only ask the taxpayers for the funds necessary to keep successful student programs. Desegregation funding pays for student services like magnet, dual language, and gifted and talented programs. Once the case is closed, TUSD would cut funding for items such as administrative and legal fees, he said. TUSD expects a ruling in the case by August. Receiving full unitary status means the district would be released completely from court supervision. The courts granted the district partial unitary status in September of 2018 on 25 out of 50 provisions. I think we are very much a model for integration now, Trujillo said, more than we have ever been in the past. And that article was from Danielle Kamara of the Arizona Daily Star. The headline reads, TUSD seeks end of court oversight in decades old desegregation case. And one brief article to finish up with. This is from Jimmy Jenkins at KJZZ. A ruling expected soon in Pinal Transportation Tax Case. A ruling is expected soon on the legality of a 2017 voter initiative that would give Pinal County the authority to collect taxes and spend the funds on transportation infrastructure. Voters narrowly approved the initiative in 2017, but it was immediately challenged by a Casa Grande resident and the Goldwater Institute. The half-cent sales tax would fund transportation projects throughout Pinal County. Pinal Regional Transportation Authority General Manager Andy Smith says it hopes to use part of the money to com connect communities in a north-south corridor east of the valley. Basically the south side of Apache Junction, Florence, and Coolidge initially, and then with hopes of going from Coolidge south to Eloy, he said. The case was argued before the State Court of Appeals in September, and Smith says he expects a ruling this month. Pinal has been able to collect the tax in the meantime. He says there is about $27.3 million in an escrow account. That was ruling expected soon in Pinal Transportation Tax Case, reported by Jimmy Jenkins of our sister station, KJZZ. And with that, we reach the end of this broadcast installment of AZ Law. Our next broadcast will be Saturday, February 15th at 11 a.m. And in between those monthly broadcasts, look for special on-demand installments. To find those, just go to sunsounds.org and click on the Broadcast Info and Audio tab. 
Your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcomed. You can call us at 480-774-8300 or email us at info at sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law and urging you to stay tuned to member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. Mm-hmm.